Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Manifest Destiny. It was a belief enshrined within the foundations of the United States. It was the belief that it was necessary to expand the nation westwards towards California. Many saw it as their duty to settle the continent, conquer, and prosper. Yet this belief wasn't limited to North America alone. Instead, it inspired a number of people, including the movement known as the Filibusters, who, without the consent of the American government, tried to assume power in a number of Central American and Caribbean countries. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast, and thanks to a listener suggestion from Marcus Haynes, we're going to explore one of these filibuster wars, the war in Nicaragua. To help us on this journey back to the 1850s and to explain this little-known conflict, I've invited Professor Michelle Gobey onto the podcast. Michelle is the author of Empire by Invitation, and it's from his first-hand research that we hear about Manifest Destiny in Central America, the war in Nicaragua, and the controversial American who assumed the presidency in the country, William Walker. Enjoy. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Fine. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, that's great to hear, and thank you for the taking the time to come and talk with us. I'm sure it's a, a very busy start to term, teaching as a, as a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. That's right, but teaching makes a lot of fun too. It does, and you learn a lot from the students themselves, and we're going to learn a lot from you today, because we're going to focus in on the rise and fall of the first US attempts at an overseas empire. This was in Nicaragua, and led by a US citizen named William Walker. So I guess we should start there, Michelle. Who on earth was William Walker? That's not an easy question to answer, actually. Because he was born in Nashville, Tennessee, he is seen as one of your typical pro-slavery U.S. expansionists who in the 1850s, particularly after the U.S. victory over Mexico in the Mexican War of 1846-48, tried to expand slavery to the tropics. Typically, when people think about U.S. expansion in this era of manifest destiny, they think of expansion by land. But following the U.S. victory over Mexico, many private U.S. citizens, who are called filibusters, tried to expand slavery into Latin America. And so William Walker's seen as sort of the prototype, and he quickly became called the king of filibusters because he was the only filibuster of this era to actually seize control of Latin American territory. During this era of the 1850s, that is the decade before the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War in 1861, 
thousands of U.S. filibusters tried to invade Latin America. And again, William Walker was the only one, so he was the king of filibuster. What people tend to forget is that Walker was not your typical pro-slavery expansionist. He is what U.S. historians would call a free soiler. That is someone who was hell-bent on expanding the borders of the United States, but not interested in expanding slavery. That doesn't mean that he was an abolitionist. He supported the slave system in the U.S. South, but he believed, like many others, that the expansion of slavery beyond the U.S. South would trigger civil war in the U.S., which is what actually happened. The other unusual thing about Walker was that his ideas of U.S. expansionism was very much shaped by European models. At a young age, he went first to Philadelphia to get a medical degree, and at the age of 18 or 20, I forget exactly when, he then moved to Europe for two years. He moved around quite a bit, but spent most of the time in Europe and Paris. We're talking about the 1840s, where he quickly became enamored of liberal ideas of imperialism. So this was a period when the French were colonizing Algeria, the British India, and he was enamored by what scholars now call liberal imperialism, that is, the civilizing mission of European powers. The other thing that he also greatly admired were the liberal ideas of democracy that would then drive the liberal revolutions of 1848 that swept most of Europe. So he didn't experience those revolutions because he returned in 1846 back to the U.S. South. His ideas of U.S. expansion was also very much shaped by European liberal ideas. And so when he went to Nicaragua, his project was not to establish slavery, despite what he says in his book that came out in 1860, which is called The War in Nicaragua, and which remains up to today the main source of history text used by U.S. scholars. It's a very well-written account, and for the time, it's sort of a pretty accurate account of what happened in Nicaragua, except for the one chapter on slavery, which is essentially made up. Yet many scholars take that chapter at face value. It is true that at the very end of his reign, he re-legalized slavery, but that was a decree he never implemented, and his newspaper, which was bilingual, never mentioned it again. And a lot of his followers in Nicaragua believed that that was just simple ploy. And the reason I mention this is because some of the most important followers he had in Nicaragua, both Nicaraguans and foreigners, were anti-slavery and very much liberals, believing that Walker was trying to promote democracy. So when we talk about Walker as a pro-democracy, liberal imperialist, that seems very jarring to people who have read Walker's book and many other scholarly accounts of Walker. So there seems to be a disconnect here between Walker's own beliefs and the words he's published in his own book. So why is it that William Walker, who's a great believer in Manifest Destiny, somebody who has previously been across the United States himself pushing through to California, pushing the bounds of American territory. Why is it that he would put such a chapter into his book if it isn't in line with his beliefs? That has a lot to do with what happened after he was expelled from Nicaragua. So he was in power essentially from 1855 to 1857 until a massive Central American army expelled his men. While he was in Nicaragua, he had support throughout the United States. And many of his key supporters actually came from the north. And many of them were, were liberals, including 
a number of veterans, Europeans who had fought in the 1848 revolutions, particularly Germans. So Walker had what we would call national support beyond what's then called sectionalism. So it was not just bound to the South. However, by the time he goes back to the U.S. after he's expelled in 1857, very quickly his support dwindles, is concentrated in the South. It has a lot to do with the fact that he re-legalized slavery. A lot of people in the U.S. took that at face value and thought that was something that reflected his genuine beliefs. But it had more to do with the way he treated his men and the kind of violence that marred the end of his reign. So... Walker, after being expelled from Nicaragua in 1857, tried three times to regain power in Central America, and all three efforts were based on financial and political support from the South. So Walker knew that in order to regain power, he needed Southern support, and so his book in 1860 is essentially a form of fundraising. You, know, you can't raise funds in the South without claiming that your main goal is to promote slavery. So this is the, the dark side of politics playing through. He's basically just trying to pander to his supporters where possible to get the money that he needs to then try and take another stab at retaking power in Nicaragua. But tell us, why on earth was it this country in Central America that became the focus of William Walker's efforts? That's a good question, because nowadays Nicaragua is seen as a very poor country. So why all this interest in Nicaragua? But if you take a look at the map of the Americas, you'll see that Nicaragua occupies a very strategic position in the sense that it is deemed together with Panama as an ideal place for trans-ithmic crossing. That is an ideal place to construct an intra-oceanic canal that link the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. In Panama, it has to do with the fact that it's the narrowest point in the isthmus. With Nicaragua, it has to do with the fact that it'd be very easy to construct a canal because of its waterways. There's the, the San Juan River that goes from the Atlantic to Lake Nicaragua, which is the second largest lake in Latin America. And from the western shore of Lake Nicaragua to the Pacific, there's just a 12-mile strip of land that separates it. So if you wanted to build a canal, the idea at that time is all you have to do is dig up those 12 miles of land. And that's why Nicaragua, for a long time, ever since the Spanish conquest of the early 15th century, that was always seen as an ideal spot for inter-oceanic canal. And then, of course, with the outbreak of the California gold rush in 1849, believe it or not, the fastest way to get from the East Coast to California was either through Panama or even more quickly through Nicaragua, even though nowadays the traditional image is of these stagecoaches traveling by land from the east to the west. Most gold rushers actually reached California by sea through Nicaragua or through California. And that's why not just U.S. citizens of the era, but even Europeans like Napoleon III believe that Nicaragua is destined to become the center of global commerce because of its strategic position. So William Walker had grand ambitions. If he could place himself in power as the president of Nicaragua and enact these reforms that he wanted to, he would literally be in charge of one of the most important strategic and economic choke points in the Americas. So tell us, how does his campaign begin to take power? It's usually seen as an invasion, which was the case for most filibuster expeditions of this era. What people tend to forget is that he was actually invited to Nicaragua by liberals who were then waging a civil war against conservatives. Now, how did they know about Walker? Walker had actually, once he arrived in California with a gold rush, 
he first worked as a journalist, but then he became a filibuster. His first filibuster expedition was into northwestern Mexico, into the present-day states of Baja California, Sonora. That failed miserably. However, he worked for a newspaper that was directed by a man named Brian Cole, who was originally from uh, New England, an anti-slavery expansionist, but then who was also interested in creating a U.S. colony in Central America. So in 1855, he gave up on running a newspaper in California and went to Nicaragua in order to create a colony in Honduras, because the fastest way to get to Honduras at that time was to take a steamer from San Francisco to a Nicaraguan port called Realejo, and from there he traveled by land to Honduras. But on his way to Honduras, he stopped in the liberal stronghold of León and met with liberal leaders who were then waging a civil war against the conservatives and were in desperate need of foreign help, largely in the form of well-armed mercenaries. And they knew of filibusters because Nicaragua had already had in filibuster experience earlier on. And Cole said, I have the right man for you, Walker. And so Cole went back to San Francisco with a contract that Walker readily accepted. And the idea was that Walker would arrive with a couple of hundred well-armed men. He, in the end, he only arrived with 59, but that was enough. Nicaragua liberals were so desperate that they were happy to receive him. They were hoping that Walker would help them win the Civil War, but that he and his men would stay in Nicaragua and help Americanize the country by enticing more U.S. settlers to settle, not in California, but in Nicaragua. Um, the idea, again, was that for a long time, liberals in Nicaragua, as elsewhere in Latin America, greatly idealized the U.S. as their model nation. And so they thought that their ticket to civilization would be by promoting the Americanization of, of their country. Was this a, a relatively popular move in the country itself? I mean, for a country that's torn apart by civil war and there's a power vacuum that's established itself during this period, is Walker able to take power relatively quickly, be welcomed by the people in a relatively bloodless fashion, or does the war rage on? No, actually, you're right. It is actually a relatively quick victory well, in the U.S., his victory is celebrated as a testimony to U.S. racial superiority. I mean, you can see that in musicals that celebrate Walker, and you take a look at their playbills. Walker and his U.S. followers are seen as sort of the driving force behind this unexpected victory. In reality, the main reason why Walker is able to triumph in Nicaragua is because he's one of the few filibuster expeditions that has strong local support. And this support is clearly these are the liberals who invite him and provide him with troops. What tends to be forgotten in Nicaragua is that the liberals who most supported Walker were also the most radical liberals. And the one person who was essential to Walker's initial triumph and then also later his reign was a man by the name of Jose Maria Valle who today in Nicaragua is seen by many radicals as their hero because prior to Walker's arrival in the late 40s, he had led some peasant-based uprisings against local elites, and that's why he was deemed a communist by local elites. And it's this communist who then becomes Walker's strongest supporter. And that's what also led me to study Walker, because when I was writing another book on the U.S. occupation of Nicaragua in the early 20th century, I knew I had to start that book with Walker because he's such an infamous figure in Nicaragua. 
And I was shocked to see that Walker had the support of Jose Maria Valle, who I knew was radical. And it, I had assumed Walker was a pro-slavery expansionist bent on subjugating Nicaraguans, particularly the poor. And then here comes their greatest representative becoming Walker's greatest supporter. It made no sense to me. So unlike examples like Maximilian I in, in Mexico, it sounds like William Walker's got a lot more local support and has a chance of succeeding here. When it comes down to his policies, his own political beliefs in this idea of, as we mentioned before, manifest destiny and also being part of the filibuster movement, what is he actually able to achieve during his time as president of Nicaragua? I mean, he's very ambitious. He wants to do a lot, including creating a canal that first was going to be a seaboard canal, but then later became a land-based canal in the sense that it would be based on railroad, which is nowadays pretty modern when you think about it, because this is exactly what the Chinese are trying to do in Nicaragua. It's called a dry canal in Nicaragua. And that's what Walker tried to do. That was his most ambitious project. And it was some German 48ers laid the basis of that by surveying Nicaragua. And what they did was, and this is probably the most concrete outcome of his two years of in power was the first true topographic map of Nicaragua that remained the official map of Nicaragua into the early 20th century. He is able to rebuild parts of the public infrastructure in Nicaragua, roads, uh, wharfs, buildings. Prior to his arrival, Nicaragua then deemed the most anarchic country in Central America. But the war Walker joined that was waged between 1854 and 1855 was by far the bloodiest and the most devastating one. And so the Walker regime did do quite a bit in rebuilding Nicaragua. He also had ambitious projects like promoting public education, public health. Some of his followers also were trying to promote women's rights. Very little of that came to fruition, in part because shortly after coming to power, he was faced with a Central American invasion, although he actually provoked it by invading Costa Rica in the first place, because his goal was not just to rule Nicaragua, but all of Central America. So in the end, not much was left from Walker's reign. I would say the main legacy is the map, but his liberal project was extremely ambitious. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's fascinating to think how the map of the continental America Central America and South America could look very different depending upon these key individuals. Was it Walker's plan to, as you mentioned, invade Costa Rica but then other countries and then ultimately create a connection between this region and the United States itself and to bring these regions into the United States? Or was this always going to be his own sovereign domain, his position of power? Um, a lot of his US followers, and keep in mind, he was extremely popular. His triumph made headlines throughout the United States. And a lot of his followers backed him because they thought he was an expansionist in the sense that he was hell-bent on promoting the U.S. annexation of Central America. And so there are maps at the time that celebrate Walker's triumph, maps of North America and Central America. They're framed around uh, the founding fathers, and Walker's one of those founding fathers. So you get a very good sense of how these mapmakers believe that Walker was promoting the U.S. annexation of Central America. But that was not Walker's goal. Walker was dead set on creating his own independent empire, and empire is the term he used at that time, that would consist of all of Central America. So we're talking about the five Central American states of Nicaragua, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. And you can see that on the flag that he inaugurates, which is a flag with five stars. And the five stars symbolize the five Central American countries. 
nowadays, I mean, I think, well, this is a bit of an odd enterprise, sort of like you know, going it alone. People tend to forget that this was the Jeffersonian path of use expansionism. The idea of Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, was to promote U.S. expansion not by having the U.S. state expanding its boundaries, but rather by having independent groups of U.S. yeomen farmers create independent polities that then would be allied with the U.S. So this was the path that marked, for example, the creation of the Republic of Texas. And then later you have a similar effort with Mormons trying to create the so-called state of Deseret, which in present-day Utah. And one could even argue that the origins of California, the Bear Republic, was also very similar. What was unusual about Walker was that this was going to be the creation of a polity by one that was not directly connected with the U.S. mainland. So this is expansion by sea. All the other three examples that I mentioned are by land. As you mentioned this expansion, it draws to mind the few Confederates who, after the Civil War, fled down to Brazil to start entire communities. You mentioned, of course, that Walker's part of this filibuster movement. Perhaps you can give us a little insight into what that filibuster movement was all about. And did many of those followers come down and move to the country and start to colonize the region? I mean, that's one of the most interesting thing. I mean, when I wrote this book on Walker, I was not interested in looking at the episode through the eyes of Walker, but rather through his followers. Initially, it was going to be his local followers, people like Jose Maria Valle, that is Nicaraguans. But then very quickly, I realized that his foreign followers, mainly U.S. followers, Europeans, but also some Latin Americans, particularly Cubans, that they were fascinating. They were very heterogeneous. He certainly had a lot of support in the South, but the majority of his U.S. followers did not come from the South. They came from the North. And they ranged widely, but the ones that interested me the most were the so-called liberal reformers. One has to keep in mind that this is a moment in U.S. history where more reform movements are very strong. It's often associated with the Second Great Awakening. So you have a lot of Protestant missionaries joining Walker, utopian socialists. Probably my favorite reformer is a woman by the name of Sarah Pellet, who comes from Massachusetts. And she is now best known as the first woman who wanted to apply to Harvard University and was rudely rejected by its president. But at the time, she was famous for having worked with a number of leading antebellum reformers, uh, such as Frederick Douglass, the famous African-American abolitionist, famous suffragists. And she was also a temperance activist. And later, she also was a very strong supporter of the first Republican presidential candidate, John Fremont. And the Republican Party then was very different than the Republican Party now. It was seen as a very liberal party that also had the support of a number of European socialists who fled to the U.S. after the failure of 1848. So those are the kind of radicals that Walker attracted. He also attracted a lot of pro-slavery Southerners who in today's parlance would be seen as reactionary. So that's one thing that's also fascinating about Walker is that a lot of people read very different things into his political project. He was someone who, for whatever reason, was able to attract people with widely divergent political views. So it sounds like that Walker had a quite broad base of support. Where does it all start to go wrong for him, Michelle? Well, talking about the broad base, these were not just armed men that joined him. This was true at the very beginning. The filibusters were essentially armed men, mercenaries. But once he comes to power, 
his movement essentially starts as a filibuster movement, but basically becomes a subtler movement. He attracts a lot of families, so women and children go down to Nicaragua. It's seen as the new California. So the high point is basically in the summer of 1856, shortly after the U.S. government is essentially forced to grant diplomatic recognition to his regime, and that really opens the floodgates. So a lot of settlers go to Nicaragua. It begins once he takes power. So at the very beginning, he rules through a puppet regime. So the president is a Nicaraguan. But then he stages these elections in July of 1856 that build on reforms that are actually very democratic reforms. They allow the poor to participate in national elections for the first time. That's why some radical Nicaraguans continue to support him because he establishes the institutional means for the poor to participate in national politics. But then he quickly undermines what could be considered democratization process by staging uh, rigged elections that he wins. So he becomes the president. So that's already the beginning. But more importantly, he then carries out what his newspaper and he himself calls a revolution. And in many ways, it is a revolution. He goes after elite power. He promotes these political reforms that has the support of a lot of Nicaraguans, particularly poor. And then he goes after the economic power of these elites by confiscating their land. Initially, a lot of poor Nicaraguans like this idea because the rich in many of these estates are built on the theft of their own land. And so they're hoping that Walker's revolution would allow them to recuperate land. However, Walker's main goal with these confiscations is to redistribute the land to his U.S. followers. So you already have tensions there between his Nicaraguan followers and his U.S. followers. And to make a long story short, this whole revolutionary process creates a lot of violence basically in the countryside. And how does Walker respond to that? Well, like a lot of other revolutionary regimes with violence. And so what you have is the rise of a reign of terror, making things worse. Central American armies are able to advance into Nicaragua, largely because the Nicaraguans now turn against Walker. So to make a long story short, in the first Central American attack on Walker's Nicaragua happened actually in April of 1856 when the Costa Ricans invaded Nicaragua. They thought that the Nicaraguans would welcome them with open arms and join their invasion against Walker. Well, the opposite happened. First, Nicaraguas didn't support the Costa Ricans, and then many of the radical liberals that had initially supported Walker continued to support him. And it's thanks to this local support that he's able to survive the Costa Rican invasion. However, because of what happened later on, and particularly the reign of terror and Relegalizing slavery certainly didn't help things. He loses a lot of that support, and that's what allows the Central American invaders to advance deeply into Nicaragua. So political extremes and political mismanagement lead to the demise of his fledgling regime. Does he flee? And also a lot of military blunders, too. You know, he is ah. certainly not the greatest military uh, leader. Well, take us into a little bit of detail about that then. So in terms of his reign of terror, is this a practice of mass imprisonments or is it mass killings? What's the character of his rule of terror? Well, it changes over time. At the beginning, it's less organized, less centralized. It happens mainly in the countryside with all these confiscations. And the reign of terror, well, it starts with probably... His most infamous act, his most infamous act in Latin America was to torch his own capital of Granada, which happened 
while the Central American armies were advancing towards his capital. He thought it would make more sense to abandon his capital and regroup around the transit because the transit road was his lifeline to the U.S. in form of recruits and arms. Granada is one of the oldest cities in the Americas, so that in itself is a huge thing. But Walker's no longer in Granada when it happens, and so he loses control over it. It has a lot to do with the fact that the torching was only supposed to take occur in one or two days, but because of the rains, it was delayed, and a lot of the men who were in charge of burning down Granada became drunk. And what you have is a lot of violence there, rape, killing of people there, looting, and whatever. And that's the beginning of the reign of terror, I would say. Um, the reign of terror really carries on in Walker's new capital, which is just a bit further south than the present-day city of Rivas, which is, lies on the transit road. And there, it takes on new dimensions. If previously the reign of terror affected mainly Nicaraguans, it now also affects his own U.S. followers. He becomes a tyrant. He doesn't allow them to return to the U.S., which was not the case previously. And this is when charges come up, particularly spread by U.S. newspapers, that he's promoting white slavery in the sense that he's turning his own followers into slaves. And that also really hurts his image in the U.S., particularly in the North. Now, Michelle, I'm sure there's a very sensible reason for burning one's own capital and then <laughs> having a situation where the media turns against you and says you're trying to enslave and imprison your own people. But am I to think that this was an attempt to burn the old history, to be out with the old ways and establish a new capital in his own making and his own name? That would be very revolutionary, right? What he says in his book is essentially that he burned the capital because the local inhabitants had turned against him. So it's a form of revenge. And in this book, he talks of Granada as if it were a woman. And so this is sort of like a love gone wrong. And so he takes it out on the capital. Your interpretation makes a lot of sense. However, the interpretation that I put forth in the book is essentially that this was not his idea. This was an idea that he got originally from Nicaraguan liberals whose home base is in León, which then was the largest city of Nicaragua. And there's a historic rivalry between León and Granada that goes back to independence. It's essentially a tale of two cities, a rivalry that goes well into the 20th century. And during the Civil War of 1854-1855, as I pointed out, it was a very bloody civil war. And it was during that civil war that liberals from León hatched a plan to torch Granada. And once they did that, they would then put a, a sign in the main square of the city saying, here was Granada. That sign was not put in the main square, but at the wharf, so a bit further away. But otherwise, it was exactly what happened. Basically, the plan, except for all the violence, the rape and the looting, but the torching and the sign here was Grana was exactly what the Nicaraguan liberals had wanted to do two years earlier. It's becoming evidently clear how Walker was able to sow the seeds of his own demise. So tell us, Michelle, how does this come to an end for Walker? Well, as I said, he's holed up in Rivas after he torches Granada. So we're talking essentially from January 1857 onward. He still controls the transit road, which means he still is able to get arms and recruits from the eastern half of the U.S., but he's also getting recruits and arms from California. And he has about still 900 men holed up in Rivas, although the advancing Central American armies are able to lay siege on Rivas. 
he and his men are still very confident. You can see that, for example, in letters written by even women from the U.S. who follow Walker to Rivas. They write letters home, and you can see that they're still very confident that they're going to win this war. This has something to do probably with their sense of U.S. racial superiority. Keep in mind, this is the era of manifest destiny. But once the Costa Ricans are able to seize control of the transit in January, then it becomes very difficult for Walker. He no longer has access to arms and recruits from the east. However, there is a U.S. Navy warship just off the Pacific coast of Nicaragua, anchored in the main port, San Juan del Sur, that keeps the port open for Walker to receive arms and recruits from California. Once the Navy commander realizes that Walker has no chance to win this war, and that Walker is receiving a lot of support from essentially thugs from the southern part of the U.S. who are pro-slavery thugs. The commander of this warship is actually from Boston, who's anti-slavery. He realizes now that Walker's movement is becoming more and more dominated by these thugs. And we're talking about thugs who, I don't know if you're familiar with Bleeding Kansas. This is a moment when you have in certain parts of the U.S., particularly in Kansas and Missouri, very violent conflict between pro- and anti-slavery forces. And leaders of these armed movements go to Nicaragua and are trying to help Walker. Once this Navy captain, Davis, realizes that not only that Walker is not going to be able to survive, but also that he's now really becoming beholden to these pro-slavery thugs, he decides to close the port. And that's the end of Walker's fate. He no longer has access to recruits and arms from California. And on May 1st, he surrenders. And what's so interesting about that surrender is that Walker surrenders not to the Central American armies, but to this U.S. Navy commander. Most of the leaders of the Central American armies want Walker dead. <laughs> they want to kill him. But the main leader of the Central American armies is the leader of the Costa Rican army, and he agrees to let Walker and his followers leave Rivas alive. So is this the end of Walker's revolutionary movement? Does he go back to the United States and settle down? Does he face punishment in the U.S.? Or does he go back on his travels and try again? He actually is received as a hero in the United States. So he first arrives in New Orleans, and it's a U.S. warship that takes him back. And then from New Orleans, he travels up to New York. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, also, he, he stops in Washington. And if I'm not mistaken, he also meets with President Buchanan. So he is still a hero until his men start trickling into the U.S., particularly in New York, and have really bad things to say about Walker, how he mistreated them. And that's when his support in the North collapses and his support is then really concentrated in, in the South. I see. So he's first turned into a hero and then in large sectors of the U.S. he then becomes vilified as, as this tyrant. But am I right in thinking that he tries again? And then he goes to Honduras this time, but there's a British connection because the British Navy capture him. Right. He tries three times. Wow. Um, and on the last time, it's in 1860, he's invited by white settlers, these islands just off Honduras, that were part of British Honduras, Ruotan, for example. And they invite him because they do not want their islands to become part of Honduras. And so he's there, but his goal is to resurrect his empire in Central America and he still believes, and he's pretty deluded by this time, that he still has the support 
of liberals in Central America. In part, he's deluded because there's some U.S. followers who live in Central America, particularly in Nicaragua, who write these letters to him saying, oh, yes, the liberals here are not happy with the situation after you were expelled, and they want you back, including someone like Jose Maria Valle, which was not true at all. But that was the idea that was being given to him. He also was counting on the support of one of the most important liberals in Central America at that time, the former president of Honduras, Cabañas, who initially supported Walker, but then turned against him. So Walker thought that once he would go to Honduras, Cabañas and his liberal troops would support him. He goes from this island in Trujillo, which is the main Honduran port on the Atlantic coast, and expects the Honduran liberals to rise up with him. They don't. They turn against him. And the British actually capture him. There's a British Navy force right there. And what do the British do? A Walker expects that the British will let him go back to the U.S., but they turn him over to the Honduran authorities who promptly execute him. Wow. So a, a violent end for a man who oversaw a very violent regime. Michelle, I feel like we've just touched the surface on this topic and this history, but it just so happens that you've written an entire book on it. So tell us, what is the title of the book and where can we buy it? I guess you can buy the book on Amazon or hopefully in any good bookstore. It's called Empire by Invitation, William Walker and Manifest Destiny in Central America. And the reason I mention Empire by Invitation, in part because he was invited, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term Empire by Invitation, but it's a term used to describe the kind of alliance that the U.S. made with Europe after World War II. The Western Europe is sort of subordinate to the U.S., it's, but it's a form of empire by invitation. And I wanted to make the link between the kind of liberal project that Walker was trying to promote in Nicaragua with the kind of liberal project that underpins this post-World War II U.S. empire by invitation in Europe. If you look at Walker as a pro-slavery enterprise, solely as a pro-slavery enterprise, it has no relevance for today. But if you see Walker as a liberal project, you can sort of connect the dots between what the U.S. is trying to do in the 20th century when it invades failed states in the name of democracy promotion. Then you can see that the Walker's not the end of something old, but the beginning of something new. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for casting light on this little-known history. I urge people to go out there and to buy the book, and thank you so much for coming onto the Warfare Podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.